This is SciBite, episode 118, for February 4th, 2014. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at a new dinosaur discovery, a synthetic monopole, strong glass, curiosity news, and it's always take a peek back in history, and up in the sky this week. Well, Heather, if I could advise, I would recommend that we kick it off with the news. Okay, so where do we start? All right. Paleontologists have now characterized a new dinosaur based on some fossils in northwestern China. This is a plant-eating sauropod. That's like the big apatosaurus-type dinosaurs. Uh, the Yongjing Long the Tangi. Wow, that's a tongue uh, twister. Yeah, I probably mispronounced that, but I'm going my best. <laughs> so this is the one that roamed the early Cretaceous period, about 100 million years ago. So this dinosaur was about 50 to 60 feet long. Uh, but the they're kind of guessing here. The actual individual they're measuring links, but it looks like it was actually kind of a juvenile. Oh, so it so might not actually have been its full potential size. Yeah. So they're kind of <laughs> expanding upon that going, all right, oh, well, boy. it was because some shoulder blades weren't uh, fused. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's like um, as you grow older, certain bones fuse. Right. So it was kind of that. They're like, okay, well, let's see how far along was that. And let's try to ind- kind of extrapolate where that might have gone. So they're thinking a uh, full adult might have been longer than 50, 60 feet. Now, the shoulder blade itself was nearly two meters, six feet. The how they, sides. How do so, they know all of this so specifically? I mean, I'm looking at this drawing here. It's quite the, it seems to be quite the extrapolation. Yeah, well, when finding these type of bones in this nature, they find a handful of bones. And from those, they say, all right, these type of shoulder blades and these type of bone, leg bones here I mean, it's this type of dinosaur. Uh, it's this it kind of load-bearing or the whatever. Long, yeah, okay. The long neck, long tail dinosaur. Okay, all right. And so then you take it from there and go, all right, well, which set does it look like the most? Because you're going to have fuller, more complete sets of uh, skeletons. So you kind of take the bits and pieces that you have and say, all right, well, what does it look like the most? Right. And then kind of help extrapolate from that, go, all right, well... We have you know, three skeletons over there with the shoulder blades of this size and comparing it. So you can get a lot from just a handful of bones there. Now, what was interesting is that this shoulder blade is so big that it really wouldn't fit in a horizontal or a vertical orientation. Hmm. So from that, they say, okay, well, now with this length and this kind of dinosaur, now they're like, the shoulder bone must have been orientated at an angle of 50 degrees. Huh. So there's a lot of different things you can gather from just 
these handful of bones that you see in the in the image. Well, yeah, this- I so I you know it's a funny comment. It does seem like some in the chat room, but it is kind of serious. It does seem like some of the coolest dinosaur discoveries have come from China, and uh, I wonder if uh, I wonder if because you know we really just haven't shared those kinds of things. If maybe we're going to see a lot more of this. This, this seems like to me uh, hearing about a brand new kind. Of, a new type of dinosaur. I mean, really at this point, that's still incredible to me that we're, Oh yeah, I guess. Well, it's funny that, uh, chat room mentioned it and you mentioned it because up until, oh gosh, 2007, I want to say the, uh, continental 48 us was the leader in dinosaurs. Hmm. Like that's where all the widest diversity was. And since then it actually switched over to China. Yeah. Okay. So it's now, more of a this- recent thing. Yeah, it is more in the last handful of years. And it's interesting because this discovery actually says, well, that kind of the type of dinosaur actually was in that part of the world as well. So it's kind of changing the map about where we think these type of dinosaurs were. The other weird thing that I liked about that I thought was crazy was that... um, well, the one that the in these in this specific bone set, the uh, ulna and the radius, the you know little leg bones, they were really well preserved, so they can actually see where muscle attachments were. Ooh, wow! So they can get a, a better idea of how the animal was put together. But the vertebrae themselves had large cavities in the interior, and so they think um, those type of situations in birds, they have air sacs. They're thinking that it's possible that this dinosaur actually had um, possible like air sacs in the abdominal cavity or in the neck as a way of kind of lightening the body. Hmm. So, you know, some hollow bones in order to kind of help reduce the strain on the reverse. Yeah. Reduce the strain on of the these frame. <laughs> giant animals. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I, 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 I never even thought about a dinosaur with hollow bones. I it was very interesting that because I know that it was possible, um, but the fact that they actually discovered them in this specific type of dinosaur mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. kind of the lar- the for better word largeness of the size of the cavities was actually uh, fairly impressive to me. So, uh, any other thoughts on that story? No, just kind of waiting to see what other dinosaurs pop out of the woodwork no or kidding. rock work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very true. Okay, well then, uh, why don't we uh, take this very this very brief opportunity right here? And uh, I want to let folks know that uh, if you enjoy the programming on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, and why wouldn't you, my friend? You are an intelligent friend, after all. Uh, there's a great way you can help us out, and that is by using the affiliate links that we still have at the bottom of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Now, we still actually have Amazon Canada and UK affiliates active. And we also have an affiliate if you want to buy something off eBay, if you want to sign up for Netflix, buy something over, over at Newegg or ThinkGeek or Woot.com. You just click those links first. Also, Mint.com if you want to get your finances in order. And Audible, which I very, very hardly recommend. I hard, hardly? I, I Most wholeheartedly. Heartily. Yeah. I mean, I recommend it all the time. I love Audible. And if you're considering, you can use that link and I think you'll get a free book. And Code School if you want to get into some development work. And also... Another way you could support is just by joining us live when you can and hanging out with us. We'd love to see you and hear from you and get your input while we record these shows. They help us make a better show, and that's valuable to us as well. You can find out when we do our shows live by going over to jupiterbroadcasting.com 
slash calendar and we have the live times it'll auto convert it to your time and you can always check out the jblive.tv stream we always have something on there and that runs 24 7 what i like to do is i try to keep the, the most current episodes uh on a loop on there where we're not doing a live show and then when we are doing a live show uh we break in and we do a little pre-show and post-show so it's always you know actually those times on the calendar it's usually worth showing up about a half hour earlier usually we have a pre-show so uh, just uh, put those out there for you. If you want to support the network, you can use those affiliate links. And we'd also love to just see you. That's always a great way to interact with us live, too. All right, Heather. Well, with that done, that means it's time for the News Bite. I've been feeling a magnetic attraction to this next story all night long. Really? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Funny you should. <laughs> Magnets. They have a North Pole. They have a South Pole. We remember them in school, all the various grades, and drawing the little north and the south. Of course. Now, physicists have predicted that there's a possible of a magnetic monopole that's just a north or just a south, all by itself. A monopole. Yes, they've been predicting it for about 85 years. Now, scientists have been identify and photograph some synthetic magnetic monopoles. Now, this is... They've been going about it by now, as I said, generally they come in pairs. This is magnetic particle, so that's just one. Now, in 1931, there was a paper published that kind of explored the nature of these things. And they've been going through over the years and saying, all right, well, they've been trying to find them. They've been searching for them in lunar samples, in ancient fossilized minerals. And we haven't seen any of these in nature yet. But there is a team uh, who is able to get this innovative approach and say, all right, well, there's an artificial magnetic field generated by the Bose-Einstein condensate. Extremely, extremely cold atomic gas. Tens of billions of a degree warmer than absolute zero. So hmm. this is almost as cold as you can get, hmm. as exists. So they had this artificial magnetic field in this extremely cold location. And then they say, all right, well, now we're going to do the experiments in this place. So they actually were able to kind of confirm that some monopoles were existing at the ends of these tidy quantum whirlpools, they said. And now, why would this be interesting? Besides the fact that it's crazy. Please tell me anti-gravity. Please tell me anti-gravity. No, magnetics. Magnets aren't gravity. Well, I, I know, but I still want anti-gravity. I just thought maybe this is... What are you, like, what do you think? Like, Magneto's going to, like, lift us up with does our magnetic Does he or does he not iron? fly? Does he or does he not fly? He uh-huh. Flies. He's lifting the magnetic suit, uh, the metal suit, if it existed. But no, this is actually <laughs> more concrete science that says it could get into particle theories and more, like, the grand unified theory... Super string theory. These are giant overall theories of the entire universe. Yeah. And kind of saying, all right, this would, this is a little puzzle piece that would fit in one of the giant puzzles that we have out here of ideas of how everything fits together. This, this, conf- this is one piece of the puzzle that confirms one of the scenarios of how the universe is constructed. Yes, which is about as good as we can get. <laughs> That's pretty much what we hope for is one little piece or yeah. a couple pieces. Yeah. Of giant puzzles. Wow. I, so I, it's, it, looking at that video, the way it looks like is there's this, they, they, they theorize there's this just tiny point in there mm-hmm. that is the monopole. Yeah. 
That is But it's just like one specific little spot. They created yeah. this, you know, giant magnetic field. This now this is obviously, you know, building a whole bunch of stuff for this tiny little area for like one particle. Yeah. This is not finding it naturally. We're putting a whole right. bunch of different things together to make the exact perfect scenario for something to may happen. And it just happened to happen. It makes a great visual. Uh, Heather has it linked in the show notes. Just go uh, down and find the uh, the news bite section and look at that video that she has linked there. It is, it's a really cool illustration and it might help if you're having a hard time kind of picturing it if you're listening to the audio version. All right, Heather, any other thoughts on that? Not yet. All right, well then let's jump into the two bite news. All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two bite news? All right. Engineers have actually made, they've always been interested with mollusk shells. They're really, really brittle minerals, but they have a structure that makes them glass 200 times stronger. Now, everyone's interested like how to make glass stronger and less break proof, especially for accident prone people like me who are now relegated to plastic only. (laughs) Sad smile. (laughs) No glass in my kitchen. Oh, Heather. Well, now they're actually being able to say, all right. Now, they've tried to take, like, the the shiny inner shell of those mollusks. Now, it's like the mother of pearl type thing. Now, the little particles themselves aren't that strong. It's just the way they're put together are, like, 3,000 times tougher than the minerals it's made of. Ah. So now, here comes the, the really strange part of this whole thing. There are now... Putting in a different, coming at it at a different angle, saying, we're going to strengthen this glass by introducing a network of microscopic cracks. Okay. You have so it. now they're cracking the glass to make it stronger. Now so these are really. It's creating like a, a fra- How does that work? How do you make glass these stronger are by breaking? really microscopic. Okay. So they go through and they did like 3D laser engraving. Oh. And they put all these little fissures into the glass. Slides and then they filled them up with a polymer. So it's not like there's like air pockets there. They fill them up with a polymer. And what it does is it makes the mineral itself kind of bound together in larger, tougher units. You know, instead of, uh, you know, holding together by one little link at a time, you know, one little finger hooked around another. Now that's kind of a more jumbled where mm-hmm. yeah, you're I, kind of, you know, gripping onto yeah. your whole hand type yeah. thing. Huh. And so these all these little tiny um, fault lines can kind of come together and deflect pressure. So after they're able to, you know, engrave all these fissures into the glass slides, you know, filled it with a polymer, then they're able to, the glass could actually, quote, stretch by almost 5% before it snapped. Now, real glass is like 0.1%. Yeah, that's incredible. So it was when... uh, some of the testing was they they dropped things and it was much less likely to shatter. In fact, it kind of bent a little, almost like it deformed just a slightly. Gosh, you know what I keep thinking? It's, I keep thinking this would be great for smartphones. Yes, they said uh, it's this kind of idea where that they'd like you know for bulletproof windows, yeah. glasses, Tablets, smartphones, smartphones. Yeah, I mean because those get you know those get broken all the time because people drop them like on the cement when they're getting out of the car, something like that. Yep. Huh. I, I hold my glasses and be like, good glasses. Stay on my face glasses. It's not your super strong time yet. 
<laughs> yeah. Boy, wouldn't that be great for, for oh, wow. Yeah. If they be, didn't get scratched. Yeah. Because they know, were really tough. Let's talk about something that totally blows my mind. Mirrors. Yep. They're crazy, Heather. Yes. And your brain can be tricked kind of oddly with mirrors. Now, there is a study that they did that says that they can trick the brain by, there's a study that said, all right, so we're going to inject a little chemical under the other side of your forearm. Ooh. It's going to make a little red patch. It's going to make it a little itchy. Ooh. And then they drew a red mark on the other side of your arm, on the other arm. So it was kind of mirrored. Yeah. And then it was, all right, well, then the experiment, you know, the scientists would be like, does it feel better when we scratch that spot? The actual ejection spot? Yes. Oh, the other arm? No. Now the trick came in when they started putting mirrors so they put a mirror between their arms. So now one arm was hidden and the other arm, so you could only see one arm. And then the, the volunteers were said, okay, focus on the red dot on your arm that is not actually itchy, where it's, there was no injection. And they'd stare at that arm and when the scientists were able to scratch that, it actually provided some relief. That's weird. Yeah, now it only worked when it was this specific um, version. Now, even when they couldn't see the actual, it, the injection arm, scratching it still lit, you know, that was the relief. That was, yes. But uh, scratching the unaffected arms still provided about 25% of the relief. That 25%? They, that's incredible. Yeah. Now, this is obviously, it's one of those things where once I kind of got to the end of this, I kind of realized that it sort of made sense because visual cues can often override mm. all your other senses. Mm -hmm. This is like um, for totally not lame people who get uh, motion sickness or things like that where your eyes are seeing one thing and your ears or your body telling you something different and your brain is not happy with the difference. Right. So your visual cues, you know, if I'm watching TV and it starts spinning, then I can actually start to feel dizzy. My body says I'm sitting there, you know, at my computer desk, not doing anything, but my eyes say, hey, there's a lot of spinning going on. Do you think you might be spinning? Right. So it's similar where you're seeing something happen. You're like, I know that shouldn't help, but it really feels like it does just a little. Yeah. No, I, I actually, I actually believe it when I see it. I mean, at first it was surprising to see that report, but then it's like, actually, uh, you know, there's a, there is that little bit of that placebo effect. Yeah. Okay, Heather, well, uh, speaking of incredible things, should we go do a Curiosity update? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. Receive Okay, Heather, what is our favorite rover up to? All righty. Curiosity rover team is now considering crossing a path of a small sand dune. Now, of course... You've been following the rovers over the years. You hear sand dune and you get, you may get frightened like some of us because that's where poor little spirit rover got buried up to its little wheels in a, mm -hmm. in a sand dune. Mm -hmm. So it kind of gives a little trepidation to them. But this Curiosity is, is a little bit bigger, yeah. quite a bit bigger. It's yeah. a little bit tougher in the way that it's built. Now, the reason why they're kind of rethinking on how to get to places is because during one of their recent... Um, you know, they take the camera and they kind of eye all over the rover, kind of see how things are going. Now, looking at the wheels themselves, 
there's actually been a lot more wear and tear on the wheels than they really had expected. Oh. So now they're starting to get little punctures and rips in the wheels a lot faster than they, you know, a lot faster than they expected. Now, some of it may be because the force of the wheels kind of like say the back wheels kind of forcing the you know, one set of wheels forcing another set of wheels up against sharp sharp rocks instead of kind of going over them. Okay. Like um pulling a wheel, something like uh luggage or a wheelchair or something over pulling it over a curve rather than pushing it up a curve mm-hmm. so it's causing a little bit of uh extra friction there kind of driving force needed so now they're kind of saying okay well now they're going to stop and kind of really rethink their their routes that they're going to they've got uh, a candidate drilling site about half a mile 800 meters or so away now that's straight line of course now they're going to have to find a little meandering route to get there but if they cross this little sand dune, it's kind of taking a shortcut to a much smoother route without having to go a long way around. So they've been eyeing it. They take the camera. They've kind of peered over to the other side of it. They're really looking at it from all angles, trying to figure out what they can do to uh, what they think about it, how to recreate it here on Earth. Because it's uh, Curiosity has a twin back here on Earth at the JPL. Right. They have a whole little Mars sort of backyard where they can say, all right, this is the kind of sand we think it is. Let's pile it up in the exact same fashion. Now let's roll the rover through it lots of times Mm -hmm. and see, kind of get all the practice here on Earth and say, all right, this is how we think it's going to go. Now try to move over to do it on Mars. Now it's about a meter, three feet high. So it is not small, not scary enough that they had they they just put it out of their minds completely. So they're thinking about you know how to cross this sand dune. They're also making um, plans about what to do now with the wheels. How to say all right, well right. we obviously have to choose where we're going to go a little bit better. They're actually thinking that if things get you know too bad, then they can actually they have six wheels, so they can drive backwards for a little bit. You know put. Oh. Different pressure on the yeah. the wheels are actually drive using four wheels, giving two wheels a break and sort of kind of rotate through that a little bit. So they're kind of picking all their different routes that they can do over to their new drilling site. Now, they're kind of looking at that. They also decided, oh, well, while we have... So they're getting their traverse time over to the new drilling site. Now, it's going to be on a slight hill. So the other thing they're doing with the uh, Curiosity's Twin back here on Earth is setting it up so that, all right, well, if we have the drill on the rock, how much, if we slip, how much can we slip before there's damage? Hmm. So they actually said, all right, well, they they say they could actually slip up to about two inches Hmm. without the drill bit actually getting any damage, which is another important part because they're going to go up a hill and be like, all right, now let's stop. Now think like if you're going to reach out with a drill and then for some reason the rover slips a little bit, you don't want lots of technology broken where it's kind of hard to go and fix it. Absolutely. So they're kind of going over a couple different things right now. Well, very good. All right. Well, always keep us posted. As oh, yes. Can. Thank you, Heather. All right. We'll jump in the time machine if you would, because uh, we got a long trip to go. Here we go, Heather. Close the date. Oh, man. 
could have created a time vortex like you wouldn't believe. Fractured universes. But we're safe. We made it to 231 years ago. February 11th, 1801. Heather, what happened this week in science? Giuseppe Piazzi made his 24th and last observation of Ceres. This is the asteroid slash dwarf planet, depending on your location of book you're looking at or time period you're looking at. But it is whatever. It's the one between Mars and Jupiter. It's the largest thing in the asteroid belt. Now, some places I've actually seen called a dwarf planet. I kind of thought that's what it was. But some locations in NASA sometimes refer to it as the largest asteroid. So it's potatoes, potatoes here. But this guy was able to find it in 1801 to calculate its orbital path based upon, you know, being able to find it 24 times and sort of said, all right, well, I'm going to guess that this is the sort of orbit that it's going to take. And so from there, they can kind of say, all right, now we're going to locate it again uh, six months later. So nobody looked at it until it got the results got published and they said, all right, well, here's where it's supposed to be. Now let's look. And it actually was where they thought it was going to be. Mm. Now, what was crazy was the gap between Mars and Jupiter was discovered in like 1596. And then in 1772, they said, hey, I think something is there. All the orbital data from everything else says something is there. And so then Giuseppe Piazzi uh, was the one who sort of discovered and started mapping out these orbits. He was actually looking for a star. It said, hey, there's this thing. It's not, a, what is it? It's moving. It's moving. It's not a star. Hmm. What is it? Hmm. And so he kept observing it. He thought it was a comet, possibly. But. But it's it actually, was, so it is actually a dwarf planet? Uh, it's, it's, I've heard of it as a dwarf planet, but NASA has also referred to it uh, with one of their missions, uh, the Dawn, their mission is actually going there and they're identifying as, yes, we're going to the largest asteroid. Interesting, because on Wikipedia, of course, and it's Wikipedia, that calls it a dwarf planet. But yeah, yeah. on NASA. But yeah, actually, if you read through, through it later, they're they like, say, they oh, actually okay. say, they're like, well, okay. <laughs> some okay. books call it an asteroid, some call it a dwarf planet. It looks like a, it looks like it's ripe for a Star Trek story plot line. It's just going through the solar system, you put, and then all of a sudden you show up, by the way, boom, Bob's your uncle, big big civilization living on here. <laughs> All right, Heather, well, I'll, recal- I'll recalibrate the Cybite 2000. That way we can look up into the sky. All righty. On Thursday, February the 6th, we have the first quarter moon. And on Saturday, February the 8th, right about evening twilight, below the moon, you'll see the constellation Orion. It's one of the largest, most easiest to spot uh, constellations there are. You've got the three belt stars all in a row, then four bright stars around it in a rectangle with, you know, two shoulders, two knees, and the belt is the hunter. On the whole planet-wise this week, we have got Mercury actually able to see it right now in evening twilight, low to the west-southwest, but it fades pretty quickly. Uh, Venus in the dawn is over in the southeast. Mars is up there on 11 p.m. at night, rising in the east, about four or five degrees from... uh, Spica, that's a blue giant variable star, and it's to its lower right. Now, five degrees is about the distance between your three middle fingers held at arm's length. Around 4 a.m., they're high in the south. So that's always an interesting pair because Mars is orangish red and Spica is blue, so you can have a nice contrasting colors there. 
Jupiter. In the early evening, rises in the east, moving nearly overhead at about midnight, about, should I say, 9 or 10, moving towards the west as you near morning. So it's still a, a nice, pretty much all-night object. That's great. Yep, and Saturn, wrapping it up about 1 to 2 a.m. He's a crazy early riser in the east to southeast, moving to the high southern skies and far to the left of Mars and Spica at dawn. Well, so that really, I mean, the one we all care about here, I mean, let's talk Jupiter, 9 to 10 p.m. That's perfect. That means I could actually probably see it this time. That's yeah. great. And Mars around 11 p.m. if I'm up a little later. Of course, Heather has all of that listed out at the bottom of the SciBite show notes. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click on episode 118 and scroll down towards the bottom. And that is where Heather has all of that very helpfully listed out for us. Heather, is there anything else we want to cover this week? Not that I can think of. All right. Well, very good. We'd love to hear from you. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click the contact link. Or you can tweet at Heather, JB underscore Mars underscore base on Twitter. And don't forget, you can join us live over at jblive.tv on a Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific and jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that in your local time. Heather, thank you for the great show. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite, and we'll see you right back here next week. 